Good morning, everyone. There are roughly around 37 miracles recorded in the Gospels. Plus, minus, maybe three. Uh, 37. And John's Gospel only includes seven. John decided only to include seven of Jesus' miracles. Of course, Jesus performed more than 37 miracles. It's just that I'm just saying that it was recorded 37 in the gospel. And John decided that he only wanted to include seven. And we call it the signs, seven signs in, the go- in John gospel, seven miracles. And the whole purpose of selecting these seven and not the other miracles that was recorded in other parts of the gospel, uh, he tells us exactly why he did that. And... Uh, Pastor Caroline has already mentioned last week. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. This is John 20. But these are written, for what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He said here, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not a surname, all right, in case you do not know. Christ is not Jesus. Christ is is not his surname. Christ is a title, meaning Messiah, the anointed one. So he said that, so that the record is seven, he only chose his seven miracles, so that you read through it, you understand it, that you may believe that Jesus is truly the Messiah. Jesus is truly the anointed one. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that, by believing, you may have life in his name. So when we believe in Jesus, we have abundant life here on earth. So this morning, what I want to do is to read to you the second sign. We already covered the first sign of Jesus turning water into wine. Today, I want to uh, read the second sign. And uh, what I want to do is I want to use the story in there to let you see how Jesus grows someone's faith. How Jesus actually helped to grow people's faith. I'll give you three points, and then what I want to do, I want to tie together, because that is not a real lesson in sign number two. Because sign number two, there is a purpose. I want to tie up with this particular point that John actually said, that it is so that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ. So I want to tie it together and let you see how sign number two that John tried to employ is really to point to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in Him, you may have life in his name. So let me just uh, begin by reading to you sign number two. Uh, Jesus heals the official son in John chapter four. It says, after the two days he left for Galilee. The two days refer to the fact that he spent time in the village of Sychar with the Samaritan women, returning back. He was here in the uh, uh, wedding, performed the miracle, and then he went to Jerusalem. And now he backtracked to attend the Passover. Now he returned back to Galilee and he cut through Samaria and he spent two days with the Samaritan woman. And then verse 44, is now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Here it tells us that this is an officer, it's not just a normal officer, it's a royal officer, he's a man of influence, of some position, probably quite wealthy, quite well connected. And uh, his son lay sick at Capernaum. Capernaum is about 20 miles, about 32 kilometers away from Cana. Cana, 32 kilometers. And what you need to know is that Cana is actually 3,000 feet above sea level. And Capernaum is 600 feet below sea level. So for this royal officer to travel from Capernaum to Cana is all uphill, 3,600 feet, 20 kilometers, uh, 32 kilometers. Uh, whether he, uh, by foot or whether he had uh, some kind of uh, uh, motorbike or I don't know, you know, um, uh, horses or skating or whatever, I don't know. But uh, it's 32 kilometers and uh, it's all uphill. So this is a man, and there was this certain royal officer whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him. I mean, for you to travel 32 kilometers or uphill to see Jesus uh, and beg him to come and heal his son who was close to death, it tells you that he was absolutely desperate, probably already tried very hard with his contacts, his uh, doctors and all that, but to no avail. And so he heard about Jesus um, because Jesus is fast becoming popular, word are spreading, and so he thought he'd make the trip to see Jesus, to see whether he could use his title maybe or whatever to cajole him to come to Cana to heal his son who was close to death. And then Jesus muttered these words, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, uh, you will never believe. The royal officer said, sir, please come down before my child dies. Jesus simply said, go, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, or some versions say seventh hour, because Jewish time start, the day start at 6 a.m., not our 12 a.m., the calendar, the time start at 6 a.m. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And because of that, he and his household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is a story of growing and deepening faith. Jesus took this man and teach him how to grow in his faith. I'm going to show you that. 
And then at the end, I will tie it up together and point to the fact that why John include this particular miracles to show that Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of God. There was a very interesting story about, it's a true story, by the way, uh, in America, in a small town in Texas. There was a bar there called Drummond's Bar. Began construction on a new building to increase their business. And the local Baptist church, not Pathway Baptist, the local Baptist church started a campaign to block the bar from opening. And what do they do? Pray. By praying to God, get the whole church to involve. Pray, Lord, please don't have this bar in our town, you know. Pray and pray. So work progressed right up to the week before opening, when suddenly lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. Hallelujah. The church were, the folks were rather smug and happy in their outlook after that. Until the bar owner actually sued the church on the ground that the church was ultimately responsible for the destruction of his building, either through direct or indirect actions or means. And the church vehemently denied all responsibility or any connection to the building's demise in his reply to the court. As the case made its way into the court, the judge looked over the paperwork. At the hearing, he commented, I actually don't know how I'm going to decide this. But as it appears from the paperwork, we have a bar owner who really believes in the power of prayer. And an entire church that does not. Thankfully, it is not our dilemma. <laughs> Imagine it is our dilemma, you know. But there is this miracle, this miracle that happened that is beyond any doubt that, uh, that I just read to you, beyond any doubt that it has to be attributed to Jesus. And some prayers, like it, it's beyond any doubt it has to be God's intervention. It cannot be any other means, it cannot be coincidence, cannot be luck, cannot be any other explanation other than it is the pure divine intervention. Some things are like that. So let me show you how Jesus worked his way up building this official's faith. The first one is, it starts off by a faith by sight, believing with your eyes. You know, imagine faith as a ladder with different rungs. And faith begins at the most basic level. It believes what it sees with its eyes. I believe what you did for me. You must feel it, you must see it, then you will believe. So when this official first approaches Jesus, we see faith at this most basic level. It is believing with your eyes. It needs some visual evidence, some tangible proof. You must feel it, you must touch it, like Thomas, you know. Unless I put my finger there, I cannot believe. This is where faith begins for many of us. Lord, if you answer this prayer, if you give me this job, 
Lord, if you give me a child, if you do this, do this, do this, Lord, if you just provide me, allow me this and that. And God, in His grace, often responds to this weak faith. He meets us always at our need, at our level of need. And I think this is where the royal officer begins. He doesn't even know Jesus. He heard of Jesus healing miracles, and the son was ill, going to die, desperate. He doesn't heard Jesus preach before. I only heard that he performed miracles. Maybe some of his friends were at the funeral, I mean, the wedding, uh, saw the miracles. We do not know. But the officer doesn't have much to go on. He had heard about Jesus chaining water to wine. It was a fantastic story, and he was maybe wondering if Jesus could perform a miracle at a wedding by transforming water into wine. Maybe he could raise my son uh, from this severe crisis that he's facing. Some say he was a great prophet. Others say he was a miracle worker, but I don't know. But I'm desperate. I'm going to see Jesus, see whether he could help me. And so, so he went and did the 32 kilometers uphill journey from Capernaum to Cana to see Jesus. It was a faith by sight, believing with your eyes. That is why Jesus said, isn't it? Jesus said, uh, unless you believe, unless uh, this generation will not believe unless they see, you know, in a sense. So on that level, it is, it is that, that level. Jesus meet him at that level, uh, uh, believe by sight, a faith by sight, believing with our eyes, what we can see, then we really believe. And many of us are like that too. Many of the non-believers are like that too, in a sense, because that's the lowest denominator of our faith. But Jesus is not uh, satisfied on that level. He wants to bring him up, want to train him, want him to experience what true faith is all about. So number two, he Move to the next level, the next rung of the ladder, it is a faith by word, not just by sight. And not just with your eyes, but believing with your head. Believing with your head. A faith that goes by sight is just the first level of faith. It is the first rung in the ladder, but God never wants us to stay at that level. He wants us to move on. And sadly, many people know only how to deal with God on this level, this first level. They believe only with their eyes. Answer this prayer. Get me out of this jam. Give me this thing. Then I will believe. But God wants us to move beyond this level. We need to believe because of who He is, not just of what He does. A faith that remains only at this first level does not fully honor God. You know why? Because it dictates terms to God. It means that God must serve us rather than us serving Him. It says, I'll follow you as long as you keep delivering the goods. It sees God as a cosmic vending machine. You know, you just put them in and then you press what you want and come out. And if your faith is based on your sight, it has its place as a starting point, but it cannot stay there as you grow in your Christian faith. And sadly, many never do. They keep wanting God to perform one thing after another for them to keep believing, much like the Israelites of the Exodus. We must move beyond loving God for what He does for us to loving God Himself. Can you imagine as parents, your kids only love you for what you can do for them? 
Can you even comprehend that? Can you imagine they are nice to you towards the end of your life because they want more from your inheritance? How do you feel? Can you even conceive of that? That so many of us are doing that to God in a sense? And so that's why Jesus said this word, not as a condemnation in any form of ways. It is only to try to understand that unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus said, you will never believe. But that is only starting point. I don't want you to stay that way. And so Jesus begins to stretch the official's faith. He dares him to trust just a little bit more. And so Jesus gives him a promise. Jesus said, you may go. Your son will live. Go, your son will live. This is not what the officers asked for, as far as he can tell. Jesus hasn't done a thing. He has no proof. There is no evidence because he didn't have a WhatsApp or he didn't have a phone call to call the side. Hey, is, it, well, is, he up? is he up now? Is he awake now? Uh, he never have that kind of evidence. So he just have to take Jesus' word as it is, isn't it? Or rather, he has two choices. He either could believe and walk away and go home, or he said, oh, no, please, please keep on continue begging him to come. And if he refused to come, he might just have to give up any hope because Jesus was his last hope. But the fact of the matter is, it tells us, the scripture tells us, tells us that he took Jesus at his word. He took Jesus at his word and he departed. Jesus said, go, your son will live. He said, oh, okay. He took Jesus at his word and then he left. He took Jesus. It's moving, isn't it? It's moving from our eyes to our head. It's moving from sight to our head. Moving from eyes to head. Believing now, even though I don't see it. Yes, my son will live. I go. I live now. I head for home. I believe Jesus say, your son, my son will live. It's a little bit like uh, what Jesus said to uh, uh, Mary, isn't it? in a resurrection account uh, because his, her brother Lazarus has been dead. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Mary? Do you believe that you will never die, even physically die, but eternally your soul will live on? Do you believe this? And didn't uh, Jesus say to Thomas, when Thomas was at the most basic level of faith, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not sinned and yet have believed. Because Thomas said, well, unless I put my finger into that nail pierced hole, I will not believe. And Jesus eventually appeared to Thomas and he said, well, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I mentioned in the first service that Thomas actually caught a lot of uh, bad reputation because he is known as the doubting Thomas. I would love to preach a sermon on Thomas to tell you otherwise. He was a great man. He was a great man who told all this. He was convinced his disciples to say, let's go. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go and die with Jesus. Let's go. And so he was so distraught and so completely shattered 
when Jesus died because he put his heart and soul and when you put in more you expect more in this, isn't it in a sense and maybe you don't believe so hard you don't believe so you therefore you don't expect much at all and because he believes so much you die with Christ and therefore he was absolutely completely shattered when Jesus died and here Jesus is teaching these officials that you got to move your faith good to the move your son will live your son will live Christian faith isn't this pie in the sky kind of faith. It's not knock on wood kind of faith. Christian faith has a firm foundation, and that foundation is in the word your son lives. Your son lives. It's in the foundation of what God says, his word. Everything Jesus says is true. Let me say it again. Everything Jesus says is true. Absolutely everything. That's our firm foundation of faith. Trust come when we have faith in what Christ says. You can rest when you believe in what Jesus said. Jesus said it and he does it. His faith, this official faith may have been ignorant and in, insufficient, but Jesus doesn't turn him away. Rather, he grows him beyond where he is. He no longer only believes with his eyes, he believes now with his head. He take Jesus' word as it is, and he pew, left, believing that his sons will live. But that is not all. Jesus is still growing him, moving from head to sorry, moving from eyes to head. And the next level is to move him. Oh, sorry, I forgot about this verse. The man took Jesus at his word and departed, moving from eyes to head, and finally now to the heart, a faith of love from eyes to head to heart from sight to word and now to love because now it's not just cognitively intellectually you believe now is your heart it sunk in into your heart somebody said that the longest distance in the world is from your head to your heart it is only a few inches, but it is the longest distance in the world to sink in through. Sometimes it takes your entire life to actually believing that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You may believe it in your heart or head, but sometimes it takes your entire life to actually sink in into your heart and it become a great conviction. And that is faith. Faith needs to go up to that level. You have to sing it into your heart and not just an intellectual belief. It becomes an experiential knowledge. And that is where this uh, official, while he was still on the way, his servant met him with the news that your boy, that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon. The fever left him. So obviously, this officer slept overnight somewhere. Instead of heading straight home, oh, my son will live. Somehow, maybe he had peace. He had believed in what Jesus says. And therefore, he had peace in his heart. He can stay overnight somewhere. And can you imagine, just, just play this scene, okay? Can you imagine Jesus say, your son will live? And then imagine the household here. Suddenly the boys you know, just wake up. 
Can you imagine what kind of reaction the mother, the relatives, the uncle, aunties, the cousins all gathered around thinking that there's going to be a funeral and then suddenly this boy's awake? And they are so excited that they say, let's go and inform him. No need to go and look for Jesus. He's awake now for whatever reason. Maybe they say, oh, because I rub him with this oil, you know, maybe he's awake or something like that. I don't know. But, and so they on the way ran to see, to seek after this officer. And this officer said, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then why would he ask why we ask? Because he's still believing in what Jesus said, isn't it? And therefore, confirming that, the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believe. It is believing in Jesus, not only for what he does or what he says, but simply for who he is. He trusts him simply because of who he is. And so here, you move on to the next level of faith of love. It is believing with all your heart. And that is true faith. Faith is not just intellectual faith in your mind, but it becomes an experiential truth in your heart and your mind. I've been a pastor for more than 20 years. I have preached many sermons. You should listen to my sermon when I first became pastor. Is different from how I preach now. Not because I gained true experience in the sense of uh, um, more skillful. Uh, it is because I grew more confidence in God's word. It sinks into my heart. It is not just an intellectual exercise anymore. It is believing with my heart of who Jesus is and what this word of God can do to people's lives. And we all in our professional field is the same. You move. You move from the intellectual level to your heart level. That you do certain things because of passion, because of love in your hearts. And that is what faith needs to do. It needs to go to the third round. It cannot just stay on your eyes or your sight. It has to move to the level of believing in God's word and ultimately believing in your heart. That your whole being live with conviction and live with passion of what you believe in. And then, that level of faith, you can influence and affect those who are around you. The lessons of faith are important from this uh, miracle, and they serve as an example to us. But I'm not sure that that's the lesson, that's the main lesson of the second sign while it is a story that I just pointed to you, there is a greater lesson that John included this particular sign out of so many other miracles for a purpose. And as already stated, so that you will believe in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. But how is this sign actually contributing to that, that Jesus is the Christ? And that is where I want to tell you that Jesus is Lord of time and distance, who grants life by his word. Vivian has read to us Genesis 1. God speaks things into existence. He need not be present. Jesus need not be present at the officer's house and use his hand to touch on the boy to say, rise up, 
Sometimes he does, but in this instance, he's showing us that Jesus is God. God created the world, speaks the world into existence. Let there be light, there's light. Let this, and then you happen. This Jesus is doing the same thing. He is the Lord of time and distance who grants life by his word. Words has the power to create. Try that. If you keep telling someone you are useless, hopeless, stupid, see what happened. The words has the power to create, to make things happen. God say, let this happen. It happens. And in the prologue in John chapter 1, John reminded us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him and apart from Him. Not one thing was created that has been created. This Jesus who changes water into wine, who cures a young boy 32 kilometers away without ever seeing Him or touching Him. This Jesus was with the Father at the beginning of time. When God said, let there be, and it was, Jesus was there as part of the triune Godhead making all things be. God willed it, and it was. And since Jesus will a boy's healing, and it was then, Jesus is obviously part of the Godhead of the Trinity that was existed for all eternity. Jesus is God. Well, this is what John is trying to say. Jesus is God. Psalms 33 verse 6 say, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. They are starry holes by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and he stood firm. John is saying, Hey, this Jesus who we see in person is incarnate. He's putting on a face of God for you to see. You are seeing God in person. Believe in Him. He came to rescue you. Let me conclude with this. John in the prologue that I just read to you, down to verse 17, it says this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ burst into the scene, he ushered in the new covenant, and there's a transition time. And John said, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, Pastor Caroline mentioned about the ten plagues, the first plague uh, last week too. There are ten plagues in the scripture, in the Exodus account. They are a sign of judgment performed through Moses. Jesus' signs are signs of grace, not signs of judgment. In the first plague, if you recall what Pastor Caroline said, or you, you, I'm sure you know, the river Nile was turned to what? Blood. Moses turned the water into blood. In the first sign of Jesus, Jesus turned water into wine. When Moses turned water into blood, everything died. But when Jesus turned water into wine, everyone was filled with joy, celebrating. Messiah is here. Cheers! 
all these thousands of years you've been waiting for the Messiah, He is here. Cheers. Bottoms up. And rejoice and celebrate that the Messiah is here. Jesus brought a better sign. Moses brought a sign of judgment, whereas Jesus brought a sign of grace. And let me fast forward to the 10th plague. The death of the firstborn son, that was the 10th plague. The first plague was turning river Nile into blood. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn son. Because despite of nine plague, Pharaoh had not moved a single inch to let God's people go where Moses demanded. And every day the cruelty of Pharaoh's regime persisted. The oppression, the slave drivers, the labor camp continuing, and God's people crying out to God to have mercy on them. God have mercy on us. Please deliver us out of this suffering. And did you know that scripture tells us that the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, I'm going to show you the verse later in Exodus 12 verse 29. The firstborn of Pharaoh sat on the throne as well. So in some sense, he was the co-regent. It indicates to us that Pharaoh's firstborn, eldest son, was kind of vice-regent with Pharaoh and participating member of this awful, cruel, and evil regime. By the way, the word official in, uh, in, in John chapter 1 means little king. So this Pharaoh son, firstborn, co-region with his father, is also a little king. And this little king, in his own right, he would have been an enforcer of the terrible cruelty and oppression that his father, Pharaoh's royal house, carried out on God's people. And you know the story. You are familiar with Exodus story, how God told his people to sacrifice a lamb and then apply the blood on the door frame, isn't it? So that when, when Jesus... With, when the angel passed through and see the blood, he will pass over this household, pointing us, of course, to the New Testament where Jesus' blood covering all of our sins. So there's this Old Testament analogy of Christ already, which we are going to study in term three, uh, KYB, uh, Christ in the Old Testament. And on that night, God brought judgment on his enemy and Think about what was like for the royal son, the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, the little king. He knew the commandment of God, let my people go. He knew the judgment of God had been announced from heaven. And like his father, he disregarded God's warning. Just imagine, just imagine Pharaoh and the son had a conversation. The son Woke up in the morning, feel great, had a night, good night's sleep. Maybe he went to the gym to have a workout. He, go, he goes through his day driving the slave, cursing their God for bringing misery and pain of the night plague to all of them. And at the end of the day, he was tired. He returned to the palace and then he had a conversation with his father. The old pharaoh said, son, did you have a good day? Oh, yeah, dad. 
I really stuck it to them today. I whacked them so hard. I vent my all my emotional anger on them. I whacked them. And I feel better. Dad, how was your day today? You know, Moses came back. And you know what? I had never seen him so angry before. And what did he say to you, Dad? Oh, nothing really you need to worry about. It's been a long day. Go and retire and sleep. And so this little king went to his bed, tucked in nicely on a nice cool night. And at midnight, 12 a.m., he's gone. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. He's dead, he's gone. The law came through Moses, and if God were to judge us according to his law, all of us would be gone. I can't even keep up with my own standard, let alone God's standard. I can't even keep up with my own standard. How to keep up with God's standard? The sign of Moses was that the royal son who was in the prime of life died. And the sign of Jesus was that a royal son at the point of death lived. Don't we have a great savior? For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The sign of Jesus points us to who Jesus is and what he is able to do. My friend, here is the message before I close. The God whose laws we have broken and whose judgment we deserve sent his son into the world, not so that we who are in the prime of life should die, but we at the point of death should live. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus came, first coming is a savior. His second coming will be a judge. First coming is grace. Second coming, you won't see Jesus come as a little baby, all right? Second coming. He's going to return to judge. But we are in this period of grace where there is still time to give our hearts to Jesus and repent. But when he returns, he said he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why? Because for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How sad if we don't have the second part 
Imagine you're just only telling us, for the wages of sin is death, period. Salary. Wages of sin is death, period. But there's the word, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the sign, second sign of John Gospel. It is pointing, John is trying to show us that he is God coming in person to redeem us, to save us. And may you, in your own walk with the Lord, give your heart to Jesus, surrender your life to him, and grow in your faith from eyes to your head and to your heart in your journey as a Christian. Heavenly Father, we come humbly to you. We are so thankful for Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save us. Oh God, so many of us are blind to our own sin. We can see the sin of others. We are blind to our own sin. We are not aware. We can't even keep up to our own standard let alone your perfect standard. How we need a saviour. How we need someone to come along and redeem us, die on the cross for us, set us free. And then when we give your heart to Jesus, we walk with you, our faith begins to grow from eyes, from just sight, to our head, to our heart radially, passionately as your disciples, living for you wherever we are, shining for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, who has never, never given their heart to Jesus. I pray that, Lord, you knock on their heart door and that the heart will open and invite you to be their Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for us. Set us free that we may live for you here on earth for how many years we don't know. But to God be the glory. As we sing this beautiful hymn, what a powerful reminder of who you are. Thank you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?